Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to uh, this episode of the Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. My name is Christine Alexander. I teach in the history department at the University of Lethbridge, which is in Blackfoot territory in southern Alberta, Canada. And I am really excited to be talking today to Dylan Bonn about his recent book, Winning Lebanon, Youth Politics, Populism, and the Production of Sectarian Violence, 1920 to 1958, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So Dylan is a political and cultural historian of the modern Middle East and Islamic world, and he is assistant professor of history at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He received his PhD in Middle Eastern and North African studies from the University of Arizona, and his research focuses on the history of youth and young people in the 20th century Middle East. So yeah, hi Dylan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Of course, Christine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. you reading the book. Oh, yeah. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So to get us started, really, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background as a scholar and about the process that led you to become interested in youth in the Middle East uh, and to, the, to this book, essentially? Yeah. So um, I'll take you back to, to, to undergrad because my, my uni days, because I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of kind of situate things. Um, so I was a history major, uh, like many in our field, had a passion for history, what, you know, whatever that means, but just, uh, you know, lo- loved, loved studying the past, thinking about it in the relation to the present uh, and whatnot. And um, while I was, I think it was, geez, a junior in college, uh, I studied abroad in Athens, Greece. Uh, and that was one of my first times outside of North America. Um, so, I mean, I was blown away in all different types of ways. Uh, but uh, also while I was there, took a trip to Egypt uh, and specifically Cairo. And that's where I would say I was really, really blown away uh, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, the idea of a, large cosmopolitan Arab and Muslim city, uh, the size of New York, just, you know, really, like I said, blew me away. Uh, you know, you, uh, I, I don't think I, I, I thought in those terms about uh, the Arab world. So yeah, I was interested in history, but I think I went to Greece because I was like, oh, ancient Greece history, you know, just like in very generic terms. And I feel like going to the contemporary Middle East was like, okay, uh, this is an area I know nothing about. Uh, North Americans need to know more about the Middle East, given uh, you know um, uh, political engagements, foreign policy, whatever it may be, uh, and this would be a very interesting part of the world to to focus on. Uh, so I, that's how I got into the Middle East. Um, how I uh, got interested in, in Lebanon, in particular, 
was what I often tell my students was for all the wrong reasons uh, that I kind of notice now. And those, those wrong reasons being uh, a history of conflict, the Lebanese civil war, sectarianism and sort of primordial ways, like all of these tropes about the Middle East that we hear uh, and specifically about Lebanon, uh, I was like, I wanna, I wanna know what's going on. Uh, and then obviously realized there was, there was so much more to that, even though there were obviously more, more complex and nuanced ways uh, to see that. Um, so this led to, to my graduate degree uh, in Middle Eastern history, Middle Eastern studies, both the MA and PhD level, uh, and continued to work on Lebanon. And when I was doing a dissertation field work uh, on a project on Lebanon, on popular politics, on social movements, things that kind of align with this book in a way, uh, I saw in the archives a particular quote uh, from a youth organization, a pamphlet uh, that um, really, really stuck with me. And um, I mean, youth organization is sort of a term that I'm using, but they were just kind of referred to as a political party. Uh, and that, uh, that quote was, uh, with the youth by our side, there is no doubt we will succeed. And it was on the front page of the, this pamphlet uh, called Ila al-Shabaab, which is to the youth. Uh, and it really just kind of got me thinking that although I was interested in popular politics, I was interested in social movements, and I knew that kind of young people were a part of that, this quote really exemplified for me uh, that uh, at the center of a lot of these organizations, these youth-centric organizations, as I call them in the book, uh, was um, youth and young people, uh, targeting the youth, mobilizing the youth, controlling the youth, empowering the youth, uh, all of these kind of different uh, trajectories. And given that it was that it was field work stage, uh, I incorporated a couple of that, uh, you know, I couple incorporated some of that stuff into the dissertation, uh, but a lot of it, uh, especially, I, I think, you know, some of the training and some of the reading and sort, sort of seeing myself more so as an historian of youth and young people uh, were things that definitely uh, happened uh, after the dissertation and in the early uh, stages of my, um, you know, sort of um, scholarly uh, career as a professor. Um, so, so yeah, oh. that's uh, yeah. In terms of in terms of how it came to the topic, for sure. Um, yeah. Thank you. So I think that you've just done a brilliant job there of leading into what I want to ask you about next, which is tell us a little more about winning Lebanon. So I will say that as someone who has studied youth organizations and also a little bit increasingly uh, the question of political socialization of young people, I learned so much from reading this piece of work. So yeah, what's the book about? Uh, and I'd also love to hear, uh, you know, obviously what your arguments are, but about the kinds of evidence that you have used uh, to make your arguments as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the subtitle of the book is Youth Politics, Populism, and the Production of Sectarian Violence, which, which is a little bit kind of on the, on the themes. Uh, but um, beyond, uh, beyond those themes and beyond that subtitle, uh, I'd say the most way, uh, direct way to kind of describe what the book is about is about a set of uh, youth-centric uh, popular organizations, as I refer to them, in the book, in Lebanon, in the mid 20th century. So I cover um, seven organizations in total uh, that sort of existed in the sphere of youth politics, populist politics, and this, um, this, this idea of the production of sectarian violence, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, so in terms of the, the arguments of the book, uh, I think uh, the most simplistic way to put it is that these organizations that I follow and the youth that participated within them 
matter uh, in the history of modern Lebanon and the history of the modern Middle East more often. Uh, these groups and, and young people within the literature in Lebanon, uh, especially from political scientists and political historians, uh, are sort of conceived as pawns of bigger national, regional, uh, and global sort of big power politics. Uh, and uh, I find that when you actually focus on uh, these groups and sort of take them at the center of the analysis, uh, you can see a very different story, which is on their importance to these, um, you know, these grand narratives within local politics, national politics, or, or regional politics from the broader Middle East. Uh, and I, I see their, their, as I said, they sort of, they, they, they matter to the history, I'd, I'd say in three particular ways. Uh, they matter in the production of a distinct type of popular politics, what I refer to as populism. Uh, all of these organizations in the mid 20th century, they were anti-elite, they were, um, were anti-status quo, they were anti-imperial, uh, and they were centered around youth uh, in terms of participants, but also issues around uh, the youth question, if you will. You know, what role in the 20th century are youth going to play in politics, the building of the post-colonial nation, uh, whatever it may be. So I think that's the, the first way in which these groups are significant. Uh, the second is uh, the role that they play in, and I think we talked about that, you mentioned this earlier in terms of your own work, uh, the political socialization of youth in the broader socialization of different types of youth. Um, so not just urban, middle class, the sort of ideal youth in sort of a modernist universalist way, but uh, rural populations, working class, the diaspora and women uh, as well, both working and uh, working class and rural uh, women. And um, third and final is that they were integral to what I refer to as the production of, of sectarian violence. And this is a more multi-layered argument, but I'll break it down kind of, kind of two ways, um, discursively and then in terms of their practices. So uh, discursively, the way that, uh, as, in, as the subtitle refers to 1920 to 1958, this book culminates in 1958. There's two chapters on the 1958 war. And uh, in the context of this war, discursively, the way that these groups described other groups and the ways they were described helped produce this thing that scholars refer to as sectarian violence uh, thereafter. Uh, and uh, when uh, I say the way that they talked about themselves uh, and other groups, uh, they often talked about their causes as just and the causes of other organizations and their youth as either sectarian and sort of narrow in a, a pejorative sense, or sometimes with coded uh, language. Uh, I talk about this language of punks and gangs and how uh, organizations refer to these, these other groups as punks and gangs, but what they're actually saying uh, is that these groups are uh, anti-modern or they're sectarian sort of in a backward sense. And what this language did was it linked a category, youth and youthfulness, that was not often talked about in the same sphere uh, as sectarianism to sectarianism. Uh, and this idea that young people were prone to this sort of identity-based violence. And, and I see this happening in 1958. Uh, of course, uh, I mean, there's great scholarship out there for those who are interested uh, on the history of sectarianism or the politics of identity, uh, the politics and culture of identity in the Middle East that dates back to the 19th century. Uh, I mentioned Osama Mokdasi, who wrote this great book about the politics of identity in Lebanon. But what I see is distinct in 1958 is the, this linking of youth to sectarianism and that those young people are prone to commit that, uh, that violence uh, in their practices. So I think I said discursively, but it's also sort of tied to their practices, the way they describe 
um, but also um, the way they sort of live that out through through uh, through uh, their rituals of violence. Um, yeah. Oh, amazing. Thank you. So I think that as someone who doesn't have really a scholarly background in the history of the Middle East, it, uh, yeah, as I've already said, I learned so much. And I think I was really thankful for the ways in which you really made that clear that this is a really significant intervention that you're making about bringing those two things together, youth and yeah. uh, histories or historiography of sectarianism. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that was great. Um, what about sources? So I, I really- oh, Yeah, sorry. Say, oh, that's okay, that's okay. So I just, I loved <laughs> how you engaged with and wrote about the print culture that uh, produced and, uh, you know, that was produced by, and that I would say few, it seemed to have fueled a lot of these discourses and practices that you write about in the book. Uh, it was really evocative. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the kinds of documents that you worked with. Yeah, so um, the, the way I describe it in the book early is sort of the cultural productions of these organizations. So in sort of social science -y terms for a second, uh, you know, my units of analysis are these organizations and uh, their sources or their, uh, their production uh, uh, is, is what I'm most interested in. And that goes along all different types of range, uh, ranges, uh, the pamphlets that leaders of these organizations uh, or sometimes young members themselves sort of rank and file members created, uh, the pamphlets that they read, um, also uh, pictures. Uh, I, I use a lot of visual culture in the sense that in terms of if we're, if we're interested in popular culture, what these types of organizations wear, where they're hanging out, um, you know, uh, who they're hanging out with, these types of things, I think visual culture is extremely uh, important. Uh, and then uh, you mentioned uh, third and final, uh, print culture, uh, and specifically in the context of uh, Lebanon, newspapers. Uh, what is what is great about studying Lebanon, uh, in my opinion, one of my favorite things about studying Lebanon is the richness of uh, print, uh, print culture and uh, specifically newspapers um, dating back to um, basically 18th, 19th century. A lot of these earlier productions were actually uh, um, from, uh, from uh, uh, associations, uh, also from uh, uh, the sort of the French missionary tradition as well, uh, and interesting in printing there. Uh, but by the 20th century, the period that, 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 that I'm talking about, uh, if you wanted to own a newspaper and have a license in Lebanon, it was extremely easy. Uh, and hence, six out of the seven of uh, the organizations that I work on had newspapers. And, and the other one maybe never had a newspaper, um, but had other forms of, uh, of print culture. So I think it's very helpful. And I think often in the past, in the context of Lebanon, because um, uh, there's this diversity of uh, print culture and diversity of perspective, a lot of scholars in the past, whether they're um, historians or not, have sort of decided we can't, we can't, we can't take these sources because uh, they're too, they're too diverse. They're all pluralistic. They are so divorced from reality. Um, but you know, as a, as a, as a postmodernist scholar uh, and a post-structuralist, I mean, I think it's very easy to do that and talk about the role that these papers play uh, in constructing these groups' identities, uh, how they see themselves, how they see the world, how they conceive of their young people, other young people and other organizations, uh, whatever it may have been. So I actually thought that task was quite easy. And I think that we're going to see more and more uh, 
works of, uh, of historians uh, in Lebanon that are, uh, that are conceiving of print culture in different ways, not as objective sources of reality or things that should be tossed out because they're too diffuse, but really interesting ways to, um, uh, you know, chart collective identity and youth collective identity, uh, in particular in my case, uh, especially in the 20th century, before the war, uh, where you do have this sort of flowering of the press. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, and I think you what you said just there and how you talk about these uh, sources in the book also just really makes it clear, as you just said, that complexity and contradiction uh, in this kind of uh, against a backdrop of cosmopolitanism and capitalism, consumer capitalism, yep. uh, it's the whole point, I think, of a lot of uh, what your young subjects were living. And, mm -hmm. I, and I love how you were able to capture that. Thank you. So yeah, so I'm not done quite yet talking about or asking you about evidence uh, yeah. in archives. So um, I, am, I would love to hear some archive stories if you have any or reflections on things that you learned um, by spending significant amounts of time in Lebanon. I think that knowing that your, uh, that your background, uh, you know, that you're not Lebanese, that you didn't uh, grow up speaking Arabic or, and so I think knowing this about your background helps to contextualize uh, this conversation. And I also kept thinking of uh, one of my most favorite articles that came out, that has come out in the past few years, which is Lara Putnam's piece from the, uh, I think it's April 2016, uh, volume of the American Historical Review, The Transnational and the Text Searchable. And it's basically about print sources and the risks that are involved or the things that might be lost when we actually don't travel to and spend significant chunks of time in the places that we are studying. So with all of that said, that was kind of a long preamble. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about your time in Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's a very important preamble. Uh, and uh, I was actually, when you were asking that question, I was just reminded of a, a tweet that I that I saw recently um, from uh, a historian, I think he's at the University of Cambridge. He works on uh, Algeria, uh, French Algeria, and uh, his name's Arthur uh, Asra. And he has a really, really great, uh, 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 yeah, he's got a really great Twitter game. Uh, I love his tweets, they, they make me laugh, they make me think. And one that he brought up recently, which kind of reminds me of what you're talking about here, is he says, uh, or I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, this idea that everybody wants to go global until it's time to go to language class, uh, you know, that everybody wants to do this until it's uh, until it's easier to, you know, take these digitized sources, uh, speaking of the art, uh, article you were talking about, or the costs associated with travel. And of course, this is complicated by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and other questions about our footprint as academics, whether conferences or, um, you know, uh, field work. So, Understanding all that, understanding all that stuff, and sort of putting that into the conversation, uh, I couldn't, I, I couldn't stress enough how it is, how important it it is to my own work to be able to go and work in Lebanon uh, once, uh, once every two years is basically what I've been doing since before the pandemic, and definitely more often even before the dissertation field work when I was starting to realize I, I wanted to go to Lebanon. I mentioned Egypt, but I didn't, I didn't mention that. Uh, in 2010 and uh, 2012 that I spent two summers in Lebanon. 
and this goes back to the language class point. Uh, I was, my PhD was in uh, Middle Eastern uh, studies with a focus on history. And I think it's, I think it's really important. I think, I mean, you know, I, the disciplinary uh, hat that I feel most comfortable wearing is definitely as an historian. Um, but for those who study the global South and anywhere outside of the, the, the West and sort of uh, uh, Western languages, uh, uh, it is hard in a history program to get the language training you need unless you have an area studies background. So I think area studies is extremely important to me, my training and everything up until that point. But then when I was, was in Lebanon uh, doing dissertation field work, I was also uh, taking language classes while there. And uh, I think they were important, not for the, uh, the reading of newspapers, which at that point I was largely uh, fluent uh, in reading, uh, was actually in conversing uh, with subjects, uh, with, with my interlocutors, uh, which were very extremely helpful here, and with the sort of gatekeepers of different archives in Lebanon. Uh, and this goes back to your point on sort of archive and archival, archival stories. Um, some of the archival archives that I use in the book are very simple to access and, and more bureaucratic uh, than anything. I mean, uh, sort of more rubber stamping than anything. So for example, the American University of Beirut that has a very, very rich holding of uh, newspapers on microfilm, that was always easy to, to go to. You know, it was, a, it was kind of a nine to five thing. I just had to make sure that I had uh, you know, sponsorship there through my university and it was easy to access. Uh, but other places, especially the National Archives, which held all the laws that uh, govern these types of political youth organizations, uh, were at state archives. Uh, and those are very hard to navigate, uh, especially as, as you mentioned, I'm non-Lebanese, uh, I'm a white dude. Uh, all of these things are very, uh, noticeable to my interlocutors anytime we're, we're talking. And, uh, you know, my spoken Arabic, of course, was getting better while I was there, but, you know, I'm still an English speaker. Uh, accents can be detected, all of these things. But the fact, you know, once you kind of get through that, uh, you know, that sort of uh, feeling each other out when you, when you meet someone in the archives or whatnot. So say, the, you know, when I go to the state archives, for example, and the archival gatekeeper saying, okay, this is some white uh, you know, American dude who's talking about youth politics, like maybe we should be hesitant. Once we start speaking, cons uh, conversing, and, and not just sort of fluency of language, but I think uh, taking conversation classes when you're in a place that you are, um, you are uh, doing archival work is extremely important because you start to learn cadences, the way that people warm up to people, just generally speaking. And I, I use a lot of those things uh, in order to um, get to the documents that I wanted to get to. And there was a lot of waiting around in, in many cases. So uh, this has only gotten worse since I was doing my field work. Um, uh, Lebanon has rolling electricity cuts, uh, sometimes three hours a day. I read a report today that in some parts uh, of the city, it's upwards of 23 uh, in Beirut, where I was doing a lot of my work up to 23 hours a day uh, of cuts, rolling cuts on and off. So, um, you know, if the electricity is not rolling, an archivist isn't going to let you into their archive, right? So sometimes I'd have to wait two or three hours, sipping coffee, just talking about life uh, with uh, the archival gatekeepers in order to gain access thereafter. So I think it was extremely helpful uh, in that sense, not only the being there, but the language classes, like I mentioned. Uh, and then just tied to your point about, um, you know, ensuring that you go go to these places, uh, returning to them. Uh, like I said, I go back um, every two years, uh, every uh, every uh, every other year. Uh, you know, during the summer, and uh, that was extremely important in terms of translating the dissertation uh, to the book. So, 
you know, I, I read the dissertation. I, I mentioned to you that there was kind of a youth element in it, but it wasn't the centrality. Uh, and by the time I was on the job market, doing job talks, all that stuff, like I was talking more about youth. Um, but in those conversations, you know, I often got questions. Where are women? Where are anybody but sort of uh, uh, urban men? And I, and I had the documents, but I hadn't uh, you know, I hadn't thought they were, uh, and this is going to sound really bad when I'm saying like this, I didn't think they were central to the story that I was telling you, because I was thinking about masculine youth politics. Um, but I, you know, after the, you know, that round of job talks and people kept on asking about gender, they kept on asking about women, they kept on asking about like, what's going on outside Beirut? It seems like you have a great understanding of urban politics, but what's going on where, uh, where uh, else in the country? And uh, a lot of those questions spurred on further fieldwork research in 2016 and 2018 uh, that was integral to the book. I mean, so for example, uh, chapter three, which is all, it's titled uh, Broadening the Base. And it's all about that second argument uh, that I was discussing about uh, youth political socialization outside of urban men. That was all written after dissertation fieldwork and after these field trips, uh, these uh, these fieldwork trips. So uh, not only going and being there, but uh, you know, playing trips back. And of course, like I said at the start, and I think it's an important way to end, end this question. This is all complicated by what's going on in the world right now. Um, but I just know in terms of where my scholarship has come up to this point that it's been absolutely essential to be able to go live, uh, converse, and uh, you know, work work with those documents in those places. Mm. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, so a lot of what you said there really resonated with me as someone who, uh, with Simon Slate from King's College London, is co-editing uh, this volume, A Cultural History of Youth in the Modern Age, forthcoming. Yep. Uh, to which, of course, you uh, have contributed a brilliant co-author chapter with Carla Pascal. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, about Couldn't have done it without your guidance. Uh... It's uh, it's, a, it's a great volume. I can't wait to can't wait to see it in print. Hold it, all that fun stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. You and me both. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Simon and I are in the final stages of uh, finishing up our final chapter, which is entitled "Towards a Global History of of Modern Youth." And so these questions about really about kind of geopolitical power, resources, language, the dominance mm -hmm. of English. Uh, so all of these things are really at the front of my mind right now. And I think that they're questions that, you know, we need to maybe uh, as a field, uh, especially as, you know, everyone is global now, our transnational, <laughs> at least, as you were saying, I think that, yeah, I think that we need to keep reckoning with them, uh, maybe yeah. in a more intentional, uh, explicit kind of way that talks about these, uh, you know, material wow. inequities. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't like agree with you. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I mean, that, that, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. You know, I, I, st I started off with that quote of going to language class. And obviously, you know, uh, I've been taking Arabic for years. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, what, what I hope this book uh, showed uh, is that there's a lot of, and I think we'll talk about this later, but just sort of the similarities in youth culture across the 20th century. And I, and I make these comparisons sometimes in the book, talking about, say, India, we're talking about, uh, you know, other places in places that, you know, uh, it's it's one thing to make a reference, but it's another thing to actually explore, explore those connections uh, and being being fluent uh, in in, uh, in in those languages, being able to travel to those places and actually see that as opposed to just like signaling to similarities. So we can all feel, sim uh, you know, we can all feel great that we're doing the same thing. 
but uh, not actually knowing because, you know, uh, we're just reading secondary scholarship. We're not doing ourselves. So, I mean, it is, it, it's a, it's a tough thing to, to, to balance. And I, I, you know, I love the importance of drawing these global connections, but then it's the real tangible work of how we actually get that done. And I think it's, you know, uh, it's, it's what you guys are doing in this volume. Uh, we're relying on a lot of scholars from a lot of different places that are versed in uh, all different types of places, languages, archival, um, you know, scenes, whatever it may be. I think that's the best we can do besides, you know, all going back to language school and not teaching classes anymore, not doing our own research, whatever it may be. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I'm just increasingly convinced that one of the ways uh, around this issue is collaboration and mm -hmm. that, and, you know, writing together across boundaries of language, of uh, institutional support uh, and of, you know, regional or national expertise. So, and I think that that's, yeah, that's one thing that you and Carla did beautifully, for example, in this uh, highly anticipated forthcoming book chapter. So, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're really building it up here. I pretty know, but it, it was, it was great working with Carla. Uh, you know, obviously Carla works in, uh, in Australia. And I mean, I had never collaborated in that way before, because I feel like our discipline is such sort of a single author, single book, you know, churn it out type thing. Uh, and, uh, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, full, 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 full disclosure here. I mean, uh, you and I, uh, we met through these workshops, we're friends now we converse, we, we hang out in other spheres. So, I mean, I, it, you know, it's, uh, collaboration is really sort of broadened my world and, um, you know, this is kudos to the, the, uh, the, the, the SHCY and just the field of youth and children, I felt so in, invited into this field, you know, like I feel like uh, I'm sort of, like I was kind of mentioning, I'm kind of late to the game. Uh, in, in my first year of my professorship, I'm, I'm, that's the first time I'm kind of describing myself as a um, scholar of youth. And that was, you know, 2015, 2016. And I feel like super enmeshed in this field and the conversations and the collegiality. So, um, you know, Collaboration is awesome. And B, I think that this is a field that is, you know, we might not have all the answers yet, but I feel like it is more collaborative than some other fields that, uh, that I've been a part of. So. Yes, absolutely. For what that's worth. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And I think that uh, this leads me just thinking about kind of about, about this community of scholars and the people who will eventually be listening to or watching this conversation uh, are, I assume, mostly people who are interested in young people in the past. So uh, I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about a concept that you use in the book that relates to these questions about global history, but that is, I think, will also be of interest to scholars of youth, no matter what, how how uh, narrow, how focused, or how broad their uh, geographical uh, range is. But you talk about global grammars of youth. Uh, so, and I know that Simon and I, while working on this edited volume, this is a phrase that we found to be really evocative and that has, ha has helped us to think about some of the, uh, you know, epistemological, methodological, uh, yeah, questions that, that come from writing about young people who are so central to the global political history of the 20th century. So mm -hmm. tell us more about yeah it does have a good ring to it doesn't it never yeah uh i like it i remember i think it was two years ago uh at our round table at uh shcy uh, i think uh simon sort of set up you know and 
and I didn't even know he was going to say it. He was like, as Bond calls it, the uh, the global grammar of youth. I was like, crap, I need to stick with that now. So, you know, I'm getting cited by by Simon, uh, you know, because I mean, Simon's well versed in, in theories and uh, in, in, uh, in all different types of fields. So the fact that, you know, uh, my name was being used in that way, I was like, I need to stick to this. Uh, but um, I was thinking uh, I would actually just kind of read real quick if that's okay. Um, the, uh, the section where I kind of break this down and then we can kind of build off of it from there. Um, so I'm talking about in the introduction, I bring, it, I bring it up in the introduction, I'm talking about changes in uh, the public sphere uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century that really, really changed uh, not only young people's lives, but the way that um, youth was sort of conceived and its role in, in society. And I think this will re resonate with, uh, with a lot of people work on them work on this era. So uh, I write, um, in the context of the late Ottoman Empire, in part due to centralizing reforms, mass migration to cities, a burgeoning public sphere, the introduction of liberal and emancipatory education, and the creation of a middle class, young people became, quote, free to do just that, be young. Their days became split between non-leisure and leisure time, uh, and thus they were old enough to begin thinking about their role in society and what careers they would take on in the future. While this future was jeopardized in the midst of the Great War and the colonial period, being hip, mobile, and innovative became a way of life to escape that instability and participate in what I call the global grammar of youth. So that's, that's more uh, on the sort of front end of how, how we get to that. Uh, how do we get, get to that moment where this, this grammar of relating to um, young people in other parts of the world and sort of universalist and modernist ways uh, became you know, something that young people in the Middle East definitely wanted to participate in, tied to all of these, uh, these different types of, types of things. And um, I discussed this probably most in the first chapter where I set up all of these, these organizations. And I think if anyone was to read that chapter who works on youth organizations or um, just you know, youth culture and youth political life. A lot of things, a lot of these things would resonate with them, whether it was, it was uniforms, it was reading groups, it was, uh, it was, you know, designating time for sports and for play, um, for leisure, for listening to music, for going to the cinema. All of these things uh, are part of this global grammar uh, uh, that, that, that I'm, that, that, that I'm discussing, you know, this sort of, the sort of way that young people are living in the early 20th century that is new in this time period. Uh, and that uh, really links them uh, to other, other, other places. Now uh, there's obviously differences within that. They're all sort of adopting this sort of uni universalist and modernist grammar that uh, youth culture matters and that the young matter and that they can be the drivers of the future. Uh, which I think, you know, uh, definitely relates to your work on uh, girl guides and scouting uh, in, uh, in North America and beyond as well. You know, this idea of, okay, what can these young women or young boys in terms of these organizations, uh, you know, play in this sort of cultivating of building uh, the nation. Uh, but then within that, of course, there's going to be uh, differences. Uh, and, and in terms of, in terms of my organizations, that, that, that you have this global language and global sort of practices of how to talk about youth and how to how to be young and how to be hip, but they're often prefaced on different solutions. Uh, so for example, I have organizations that I work on uh, that I would describe as sort of uh, thinking that uh, generic fascism, uh, not um, Nazism, but sort of this idea of discipline and order, state building, the state is absolute, all of these types of different things uh, were the way to really 
build out uh, and mobilize the youth. Where other organizations that I work on were very different in that solution. Uh, some were, uh, you know, uh, social democrats. Uh, some were communists. They had all different sort of solutions to how to solve this question of, um, uh, you know, how to how to drive the youth forward and how youth would participate in that. So. Again, building off of a similar language, that global global grammar of what it means to be young and what it means to mobilize the young, but all sort of uh, dictated by a different solution of how uh, to solve uh, the issues of 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 that of that era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think that uh, one of the ways, one of the another of the strengths of your book really is that it shows that you use these seven organizations to show just, I think really the value of a kind of a, a really fine grained analysis of looking closely at them and looking closely at, uh, you know, both continuity, but also change over time. And the fact that those two things uh, are sometimes not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I, you know, that was definitely, uh, you know, I, I definitely take sort of an organizational approach. And I think the pros of that are exactly what you're, what you're talking about, that fine, fine grain analysis of groups that have often just been conceived of as sectarian in a pejorative sense, as only political, not cultural, uh, as only pawns, not drivers, whatever it may be. So I think it's really good in that sense. Uh, I think some of the things that I mentioned at the end of this book doesn't do is sort of get us into broader uh, 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 non-organizational youth culture uh, in the 20th century uh, in Lebanon, uh, something that uh, the book book does not cover, uh, and how they engage in different, uh, you know, because uh, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, yeah, this was a generation where many young people were in these organizations politically active, but not everybody was, right? Uh, and hence, um, those are things that are not captured by that, uh, that organizational uh, approach. So like anything, uh, no, no approach is a silver bullet, but I think it does well, like you were saying, in terms of figuring out these, uh, these contradictions and continuities in between what have often been seen as diametrically opposed groups, you know, or just sort of like, you know, very, very different. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I think that one of the, if, I think that one of the uh, claims that you make throughout this monograph is uh, rightly about the significance of youth as lived experience, as a category um, to these, uh, yeah, to these kind of pre-sectarian almost uh, political moments, tensions uh, in modern Lebanon. And so I, so thinking of significance, um, uh, I think that that, and building here on, I'm riffing here a little bit on Mona Gleason and as on a keynote address that she gave recently uh, at the HEX conference about agency and experience uh, hosted by the University of Tampere in Finland. And she is, this is, this is, uh, this is me getting us to the agency debate, in other words, yeah. so, which historians of young people right now are really talking a lot about in- uh, Really generative and productive ways. But so what Mona said was that she, and I think certainly this spoke to how, to my kind of entree into thinking about agency um, and young people, was that the kind of the impulse to say that young people had agency, here it is, uh, comes in a, or comes in a lot of cases out of our desire to demonstrate the historical significance of our subjects to mm -hmm. people who study adults and who might be skeptical about these claims that young people, that the history of young people always already is the history of politics, the history mm -hmm. of economics, 
uh, the history of warfare, all of these big so-called serious subjects, right? So I think, so agency is, and I would say significance, those are threads that weave throughout this book. Um, yeah. And you use Pierre Bourdieu's work, for example, to talk about uh, the issue of agency and structure. So I, so basically this is me asking you to tell us, yeah, what do you think about agency? And what does this book <laughs> say about uh, agency that will be of interest to uh, folks who are following these heated debates among? Yeah, I, I think they're great. Uh, yeah, you know, I obviously started off the hour uh, with being like, yeah, young people matter in my case. My subjects matter. Hey, read this, read this book, you know? So uh, definitely uh, understand the potential uh, pitfalls of only kind of kind of leading, leaning on that. And I, I really do think that this is where uh, Pierre Bourdieu's uh, work really, really does help this idea of bounded or structured agency. And I also understand just to kind of preface here, uh, the conversations that are going on uh, about agency, uh, kind of its positionality that it's sort I, th I feel like many, many uh, at least the criticisms that I've agreed with with the term are sort of seeing agency in absolute terms. You know, youth matter full stop and we need to focus on them and not really uh, conceive of this broader context that uh, they're within. This sort of, I mean, you know, uh, uh, guided by sort of libera liberatory, emancipatory uh, sort of theories and that, hey, you know, individuals matter full stop as opposed to uh, seeing this kind of, kind of, kind of broader broader context. So I, you know, uh, I think that's important uh, to realize, but I, one way that I do think Bordeaux really helps in those who've sort of adopted him thereafter, because uh, he's largely talking about class, but uh, I'm talking less about class in this context, um, is this idea of bounded uh, agency, uh, that uh, the organizations, the young people that I focus on, they are shaping the world around them through their practices. Uh, whether those practices are deemed as positive or negative, uh, by the populations uh, at large, the broader population, given uh, what time period is and what's going on. So, so positive, uh, you know, when they are the drivers of change and they're building the nation and the French are gone and it's like, yeah, we're all great. That type of, you know, uh, political agency, uh, if you will. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, pejoratively, as it's often referred to, uh, when these groups are at the center of, you know, uh, violence, that uh, these, as, as I mentioned earlier, that the young people uh, and the organizations that they represented, the way they describe themselves and others, breathe this thing to life called sectarian violence. So they do have some 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 agency, some leveraging, mobilization, whatever term you want to want to use there. Uh, but I think I do uh, a fairly good job in the book of balancing this with the social structure that these organizations are embedded in. Uh, I talk uh, I talk about class and class distinction that happens within these organizations. So, uh, for example, in particular organizations, those members who are deemed on, deemed to be able to go on uh, and be uh, intellectuals and be you know do the rhetoric and do the speeches, and those that have to you know be the guards at the event and uh, you know like the security guards and uh, you know are just doing sports or whatever. Uh, so there is that sort of class distinction there, um, but also. Um, Social structure of Lebanon, uh, the, the, you know, and this will just be a, a, a quick overview for those who don't know uh, much about Lebanon. Uh, so I, I say that this book is about the production of sectarian violence, but sectarianism as a uh, government structure has existed in Lebanon since the late 19th century. It was brought on uh, by the, uh, the confluence of the Ottoman Empire, uh, uh, European powers, uh, this sort of obsession with identity politics these people are Christians, these people are Sunni Muslims, these are uh, Shia Muslims, but then 
it does become embedded in the, uh, in the government structure where, for example, uh, in parliament uh, up to this day, this changed after the war, the war uh, half of parliamentarians have to be Muslims and half have to be Christians. Um, so this is embedded in uh, political practice. And these organizations can't escape that. They, they can shape it and they can say, you know, uh, we, are, uh, we are utopian, we are universalist, we represent the people. But then the question is, who are those people? What are those people? Who is in, who is out? And that is where maybe, if you want to think about it in basic terms, the structure sort of wins over the organizations. Uh, and not that they're doing anything mechanical thereafter, but that it really dictates the way they talk about themselves and they talk about the other. And that's, you know, I mean, that's why I use this Jaron in the title, uh, Winning Lebanon, uh, this idea that it's active, that it continues on and includes agents and it includes structures. Uh, but it's also about defining Lebanon, uh, shaping Lebanon, but also being shaped by these government structures uh, that, uh, you know, have been in existence and aren't, aren't static, but um, always uh, what is fixed about them, I guess one would say, is that identity matters and sect, sect identity matters. Maybe how it's deployed or how much it matters is different, but the fact that it does matter uh, is sort of a, a fixed thing throughout the 20th century. Uh, and hence these organizations are leveraging that, changing it, but also constricted by it. So a long roundabout way of saying uh, shaped and shaped by, uh, and I, but, I, but I think these are very important conversations to, uh, to have. And I, you know, I think they're generated from the fact that uh, our subdiscipline uh, had to, you know, feel like it had to prove our existence by saying young people matter. We're adults studying young people. Uh, but now I think we're at a sort of a, a moment where we can kind of step back from maybe that initial impetus that it has to matter uh, to now, now that I feel like it's been recognized that young people do matter. Uh, uh, but the, the question is, OK, how do they matter in what ways? Uh, what are the pressures and what are the opportunities? What is the what can they leverage and what is uh, uh, leveraging them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that uh, if we want evidence of, I would say, kind of the scholarly acceptance, growing acceptance of the fact that, yeah, young people do matter. Um, I think you can see it, for example, in the historiography of the Middle East. Uh, mm -hmm. There are more and more scholars who are writing about uh, histories of children and youth in that part of the world. And so as someone whose who's geographical expertise does not include the Middle East, um, I'm, yeah, I was fascinated by this work and by, you know, the points of connection and difference that I saw with things that I had studied um, in different parts of the former mm -hmm. British Empire. And so I'm wondering what you, as a historian of the Middle East, um, as someone, as you mentioned, with an area studies background as well, that what you think um, those of us who study other parts of the world, um, what we can learn from reading uh, and engaging with uh, histories of the Middle East. Yeah, so uh, I'll mention some of those uh, the, those names and some of those works because I think they're they're so so important. Uh, so uh, Nazan Maksudian uh, and, and her work on Ottoman children and youth, both in the late Ottoman period and in the context of the Great War. Uh, Heidi Morrison, uh, who wrote a great book on uh, Egyptian children, is now working on Palestinian children. Uh, I mean, has always been working on Palestinian children, but is writing a book about that now. Uh, and Wilson uh, Jacobs' uh, work on uh, uh, youth organizations and, and uh, young people in the context of Egypt, all have been very, very, very uh, helpful uh, to, to my own work. And I, you know, I think in, in terms of 
in terms of the globe, uh, I think the most important thing in, in terms of what I do in my teaching and my research is always desens uh, desensationalizing uh, the Middle East uh, and the Islamic world uh, in the sense that um, conflict, violence, identity politics is always described uh, in the West as complicated, as multifaceted, as uh, you know, we have to look at this angle of it, whatever it may be. In the context of the Middle East, especially in English language uh, scholarship and English language media, and then I do think that this is also sometimes internalized within the context of the Middle East, uh, is just these very simplistic answers. Uh, you know, it's, it, is, uh, it is either primordial fixed identities or it is outside forces uh, that, you know, have ruined uh, the, the, the Middle East. And yeah, I, I, think, I think my book, uh, although my book is a lot about conflict and it is a lot about identity and sectarian identity, how that comes to be, the path by which we get there is much more circuitous and much more nuanced uh, and not a um, foregone conclusion. I mean, I think that, you know, if you're reading this book and you didn't know the end of, uh, the end of uh, you know, what happens to Lebanon and you didn't read the production of sectarian violence point, you'd, there'd be a point when you're reading this book, you're like, things are looking good. Things are looking uh, good for these organizations. Things are looking good for Lebanon. This is similar to a case that I work on where, uh, you know, um, yeah, that uh, there isn't this sort of pejorative aura around the country in, in the Middle East. I think that's really important to dwell on that, focus on that and highlight that period in the, in the mid 20th century where young people were, uh, were seen uh, as the drivers of change. And of course that had, uh, you know, all different terms, terms of power politics tied to it. Uh, but I still think it's important that they were, uh, you know, that they were they were seen that way, even if the conclusion uh, is uh, a little bit um, uh, more depressing, uh, if if you will. So I, I think that that's uh, that, that that's extremely important uh, in terms of this idea of yeah contextualizing that, and then kind of um, you know tied to you know what can those uh, who read my book who do not work on the Middle East, uh, what can they you know what you know, uh, what is important. I think it's those similarities uh, that you were speaking of. And I, and I think that needs to be prefaced by the, the, these points I've already talked about in terms of how to do global history, how to do rich global history. But I do talk about it uh, in the introduction. So I just wanted to read something real quick because it's, um, you know, it's tied to this, this point. Um, so I write, it's right towards the end of the introduction. I say, indeed, since the early 20th century Middle East, Similarly to other parts of the global South, when categories of modernity, citizenship, nationalism, education were articulated in practice, young people have been agents for and a site of radical change. And uh, I think that that has been accepted full stop in other parts of the world, even in sort of like common, common discourse, you know, say in the context of the United States, uh, I think people accept that young people were at the, the forefront of, you know, the sort of 60s activism, even if they see it in simplistic ways, they don't judge it. But uh, in the context of the Middle East, uh, you know, uh, I think many people in the West would be like, oh, yeah, youth politics, Middle East, we're talking about the Arab uprisings 2011. And like, that's it. A anywhere else, we're talking about states, we're talking about heads of states, we're talking about Kamal Abdel Nasser, we're talking about Yasser Arafat. We're talking about Muammar Gaddafi, you know, Saddam Hussein. We're talking about all these big things and not actual either ordinary people, or ordinary young people. So I, you know, uh, my book wants to, uh, as best as possible, it seeks to add to that and, and say that yeah, these these grand narratives that we've heard on the Middle East are not only um, uh, factually incorrect, but it just you know, on on top of that, 
much more nuanced. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that relates to uh, a phrase that I had noted um, in the epilogue of your book that I wanted to bring to the attention to the folks who are listening to our conversation uh, right now, which is that you end with, I, I do love a good sort of manifesto-ish sentence. And I think that this is, this is one of those. Um, you end with a call to scholars to center youth and their politics uh, in the history of modern Lebanon, but also uh, in the histories um, of, and in our understandings of global politics in the 20th and the 21st centuries. So I think that that, yeah, I think that that's it. That's it. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I think that there needs to be more of that. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering if you have anything, any thoughts about that, about what historians of youth um, with a global bent uh, would do well to be working on right now or should be thinking about, you know, what's, where's the puck going to use a sports metaphor, which I never do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was surprised when I heard that, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think first off, one thing I wanted to end with is those sort of manifesto uh, statements. Um, this is something that I feel like I've learned in the last couple of years of my writing. I think it's something to impart on all of our uh, listeners, especially graduate students, like, just being humble uh, and sort of saying it at the end of whatever research you do, like, this is what I haven't done. And this is what I want, want others to do. Because, I mean, I, I centered youth that were a part of these organizations, but, you know, I missed a lot uh, because, you know, I was focusing on these organizations I mentioned earlier. So, you know, admissions, uh, I think, are extremely uh, important and making calls. Uh, but, uh, you know, so just as sort of a writing practice, I would, uh, you know, uh, I would suggest that to everyone because I think it's extremely uh, important. And, uh, you know, people pick up on these types of types of lines as sort of, uh, you know, humble, humble scholarship, but also forward, forward thinking. And, and in terms of that forward thinking, I think it goes back to your your, your agency sort of structure uh, point, I, I think focusing on uh, individuals uh, uh, and not in sort of like, um, you know, laudatory, uh, celebratory biographical ways, um, but uh, micro history, uh, I think is especially a way to go. I know that you're, you're working on this because uh, I remember the, the, the keynote you did a couple years ago where you were following individuals who were writing love letters back and forth uh, and family letters. Uh, and I think, uh, of, of course, uh, when we're doing that type of history, focusing on the individuals that sources uh, allow for us, the young, uh, source, uh, young individuals that sources uh, allow for us, uh, we have to be uh, make sure that you know uh, we are thinking about the structure agency debate that we talked about, uh, and that we are not just sort of seeing these individuals in in, uh, in a vacuum as the makers of history, but positioning them uh, within uh, their historical context. Because I think that um, we can. I'm, I'm starting to think more and more. I'm starting to be more and more convinced that we can learn much uh, more. Uh, uh, well, not much more, but we can learn a lot about an individual era a theme, a practice, whatever it may be, if we intimately engage with the sources, not around just an organization, but, uh, you know, an individual, uh, you know, and their worldview creation, uh, of course, balanced with sort of the, the macro level stuff. So um, to that end, that is, that is where my research is, is moving. It's actually something I wanted to talk to you about after you got a few minutes, but um I'm uh, working on a micro history of a uh, young Lebanese man in the 1960s and uh, his life intersects uh, with uh, 60s activism. It intersects with uh, traveling abroad 
and it also intersects with the history of the Lebanese civil war. So, I mean, the question I have that, that I'm planning on asking in, the, in this project, and I'm you know, actively thinking about right now is like, what can the intimate uh, and the individual uh, illuminate uh, about these broader, broader trends? How can it, what can it confirm about the scholarship that we already know uh, in any given field? Uh, and what, um, what does it challenge? Uh, what does it, uh, what assumptions does it really, really, really break down? Uh, and, and accordingly, I'm working with new sources, uh, less with print culture, much more with uh, handwritten uh, letters. And I think as I've told you that that's been, that's been a doozy. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how good your, your foreign language skills are. If you can't read somebody's handwriting, it gets quite difficult, but I mean, it's, it's been super fun stuff and I'm really looking forward uh, for, forward to that. But yeah, I mean, you know, it is it is the type of research that I feel like um, at a particular stage of the sort of kind of traditional academic career that I have, you know, through the professoriate, this types of research becomes easier uh, to do. You know, I'm going to focus on an individual, and you know, uh, now that I've written something else, I can can I, I can uh, I can convince you that this person matters. But I do think even more broadly that um, uh, this 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 should be a way uh, not only to center youth. Uh, as sort of a category of analysis, but individual young people. You're preaching to the choir, man. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. As you said, I've been on a similar kind of a track from you know organizational and prescriptive sources to ego documents and handwritten letters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. All of the no, I need to start using that term more. Ego documents. I've seen it more more often, and sort of. Uh, on 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 blogs on HNet stuff, and it's like that is what I'm looking at here. So I need to kind of look at the literature around that as well. Yeah. Okay. So yes, this we will continue this conversation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think over the next months, years, which I'm really looking forward to. But uh, yeah, I think that it's been almost an hour uh, time wow. when you're having some intellectual fun. So um, I think I think yeah, I'm just going to end by saying thanks again, Dylan, for uh, sharing your work with us. Thank you, uh, thank you for your your great questions and listeners. Uh, thanks for. Thanks for listening to it. The full hour, if you made it this far. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.